0: Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. All right, tonight uh, we are on part four of five on the deity of Christ, a five week deep dive into the compelling evidence of Jesus' deity. Um, Tonight we are on week four. Jesus does the same work. That only God can do. So tonight we're going to be um, going over that part of the acronym HANDS and all of you I'm sure are pretty versed in what the acronym is. The H, what is the H? Honors. So what does that mean? Jesus shares the same worship, devotion, that, that, that the God of Israel um, deserves, and only he deserves that. So in the A is what? Attributes. attributes. Jesus shares the attributes of Yahweh. Um, and the N, what is the N? Names. Jesus has the same, he's called by many of the same names that the God of Israel is called. And the D? Deeds. He does the same deeds or he does the same works that only God can do. And then the S for next week is seat or throne. So Jesus sits on the same throne that the God of Abraham sits on. So um, there will probably be time tonight for questions. So I should have said that at the beginning of class. But um, if you come up with questions throughout tonight... Um, then let me know at the end, and we will try to cover some of those. So uh, the, page number one of the notes is pretty much review. There's a few quotes that are pretty uh, good summaries of um, Jesus sharing the same honors, attributes, and names. And so I'm just going to read the last of the three quotes. It says, When Christians affirm that Jesus is God, They are simply being faithful to the explicit teaching of the Bible. After all, the New Testament does indeed call Jesus Christ God, not once but several times. It also affirms that Jesus is Lord, repeatedly doing so in contexts that equate Jesus with Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. In addition, the New Testament assigns a variety of other divine names or titles to Jesus, such as Bridegroom, Savior, first and the last. It gives Jesus all of these names in the broader setting of a pervasive attitude of exalting the name of Jesus above every other name. If we are to be faithful to the teaching of the Bible, we must acknowledge Jesus Christ as our great God and Savior. So, and I didn't even have time or space in the notes to fully give you all the examples of Jesus being called bridegroom Uh, Savior, first and last, etc. So essentially, I am condensing... I mean, I I showed you the the two books at the beginning of the class. Um, That's 650 pages worth of, you know, uh, seminary-level book content, referencing verses, talking about Greek and Hebrew, diving into organizing the structure of why do the really smart brains in the Christian church, not just today's generation, but over the course of hundreds of years, dating all the way back to the days of Jesus, why can we firmly say that Jesus is God? So I'm condensing that content into something that is more manageable and something that anyone should be able to go home and either read the notes or listen to the teaching and hopefully understand at least most of it. Um, So there's a whole lot of verses and content that I am not representing in the notes, uh, simply because you can't condense 650 pages down to 40 very easily. Uh, So, Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth. So we're starting at the very bottom of page one. So foundational to Judaism is the belief that the Lord God is the only creator of the universe Christianity does not deviate from this belief that God alone created the world. So Isaiah 44:24 it says thus says the Lord your redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb I the Lord am the maker of all things stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. This is a profound verse specifically because it really couldn't be more clear. Like this is the biblical declaration of how the earth was formed. He, God did it. He stretched he he was the maker of how of how many things? All things. What percentage of creation did God create? All of it. And he did it by himself spreading out the earth all alone. You really can't get more clear than a statement like that. So only the God of Israel is worthy of worship because he is the sole creator of all things and ruler of all things. God alone created, no one else had any part in this activity. And that is a quote by Richard bockham So this is one of the main reasons why God is worthy of worship. God is worthy of worship because we believe Him to be the creator of all things. We are created beings. Everything around us is created. All of the limitations and the beauty of this life, all of it, all of the structure, all of that has been created by God, not by man, and we therefore have a heart posture of worship toward our creator. So in the New Testament, reading a second quote, says the new testament maintains this same monotheistic belief yet the new testament also teaches that all things owe their existence to Jesus Christ God's son and under d Yahweh is the only one who par- who participated in creation Christ is the one who participated in creation therefore Christ is Yahweh and that quote is by Francis Francis Beckwith, so that statement that I just read—that is a proven logical statement. So this is a, this is a, uh, this fits within the category of standard logic, where we have this phrase: Yahweh is the only one who participated in creation. Christ is the one who participated in creation. Therefore, Christ is Yahweh. So this argument has two premises. This is a type of logic. There's two premises. Premise number one is that Yahweh created the earth by Himself. Premise number two is that Jesus created the earth. If it can be proven that Yahweh created the earth alone, and it can be proven that Jesus created the earth, then it becomes equally true that Jesus is Yahweh. Now that might be a little over your head, um, but I'm just personally this is really interesting because when it, when it comes to theology and when it comes to belief systems and when it comes to doctrine there really is there really are parameters of how we think like god gave us the gift of the human mind that is able to with all of the power of our of, of our intellect do our best at wrapping our head around what God has revealed to us so within that framework theologians regularly use proven logical principles that secular mathematicians and philosophers and whatever would use those same principles to prove their theories right so in the same way that a mathematician would say this math problem this form of going about math is logical and therefore it's true and right in the same way a philosopher would say, this is how the universe functions, this, and, and this is the logic I'm using, so therefore it's true and right, that same logic, that same system of logic, the same system of thinking, can and should be applied to our belief systems and how we process the truth statements of, of Scripture and come to conclusions based upon those Scriptures. So what that means is, the Old Testament says Yahweh alone created, the New Testament says Jesus created, so we don't believe that there's a fundamental contradiction between the two. So the, 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 the only way to process that is to say, yes, Yahweh created alone, Jesus created, therefore Jesus is the Word made flesh, He is, he, he is also fully God, essentially. So there is no contradiction in that statement. So Yahweh alone created the earth. It is undeniable that the Old Testament backs up this statement that Yahweh alone created the earth, and this is why He is worthy of worship. So here's the verses. Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And in Psalm 95, 5-7, through seven, it says, The sea is His, for it was He who made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hands. Today, if you would hear His voice. And then in Nehemiah 9-6, it says, You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens. The heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them, you give life to all of them. And the heavenly hosts bow down before you. And then Isaiah 37:16, it says, "O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim? You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth." So here we can see, without a shadow of a doubt, that this is what the Old Testament teaches. That Yahweh is the creator of heaven and earth, and that is one of the many reasons why he is worthy of all of our devotion, all of our worship. So Jesus created the earth. The New Testament is equally clear in its belief that Jesus created the universe. So here we see an equally profound list of verses and page 3, so John 1, 3. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And if you read the context, it is talking about Jesus. All things came into being through Jesus. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Again, like th- th- this is an ironclad statement. The Old Testament is like, Yahweh did it by himself. No one helped him. The New Testament's like, literally every ounce of everything that was ever created ha- came through Jesus. You cannot have more profoundly simple yet complete statements on both, on, in both testaments. And then in John 1.10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And then Colossians 1.16 says for by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Again, referencing specifically Jesus. Hebrews one two in the last days, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And then Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Again, referencing Jesus. So again, Yahweh is the only one who participated in creation. Christ is the one who participated in creation Therefore, Christ is Yahweh. So does that make sense? Any questions? So Jesus also is the sustainer of everything ever created. So the active and perpetual sustaining of the universe, according to God's purpose, is called providence. He only created the universe before he became a man. He also upholds and sustains the universe that he created. Every visible and invisible reality that keeps life on earth going is dependent upon Jesus' active involvement, sustaining power, and providence. So Acts seventeen twenty-five. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So who gives life? Says Jesus, He gives He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. In Acts seventeen, twenty eight, for, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, For we are also his children. In him we live and move and exist. Praise God for thousands of years of proven existence. That proves that God is not, He's not double minded. He's not weak. His mind is not constantly changing. He's not creating the world and then destroying the world and then creating the world and destroying the world. He has sustained it for thousands of years. And we have that really as a blessing to look back on and say, okay, Lord, even through the wickedness of man and the the frailty of our own sinful hearts and the ups and downs of the created world, in all of that history, God in His providence is still upholding all things by the word of His power. He is still giving us life. And in Him is where we find that life. And and in Him we move and exist. So Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and in Him, all things hold together. Sometimes life feels pretty chaotic. Sometimes tragedy strikes. Things happen in life that are painful that make us feel like the world is being turned upside down, that our world is being turned upside down. Sometimes it feels like nothing in the future is predictable, that we don't know where things are going, and that is, can be traumatizing and scary. But there really is An anchor to our soul there really are biblical truths that are not just intellectual but actually can ground our emotions I I I believe that right the the Bible says to love God with all of our heart soul what mind and strength so I am not called to love God with your strength I'm called to love God with my strength I'm not called to love God with your mind I'm called to love God with my mind. I'm called to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that means that there's different capacities for all of us in all of those categories. There are people that are exponentially more brilliant than me. And I struggle to understand the flow of what they're talking about. There's people that are exponentially better than me in the, in the realm of the capacity of their strength their energy levels, they wake up earlier, they're instantly alert, they never get tired, whatever. It's like, but I, I'm not called to love God with their strength. I'm called to love God with my strength. So and equally with the mind, I am called to love God with my mind. That means for me, this is why I, I, I want to understand as thoroughly as I can, and then disseminate that information, that knowledge to others. It's not just that the accusation against the intellectual is that, oh, you know, knowledge puffs up, love edifies. That is true, that knowledge can puff up and love absolutely does edify. But there has to be a tension because God calls everybody to love God with their mind. So is the brilliant mind just supposed to throw their mind in the trash can and not use it to understand the Scriptures, not use it to mine the depths of the knowledge of God. Right? So we are called, whatever our capacity is, to love God fully, to love God with everything that I am. So I want to love God with my mind. And that means that the truth of Scripture in crisis isn't just an intellectual thing. I'm not just saying my world's being turned upside down, intellectually I know that God is the sustainer of all things. The whole point in the truth, the whole point is so that the truth of the Word would be true in here, but equally true in here. So I want to love God with all my mind and also all of my heart. And in order for me to love God with all of my heart, the, the, the heart is... What do we know about the heart? The emotions they go up, and they go down, and they twirl around, and then they get spinny, and they don't know which way's up. The emotions are everywhere. Praise God for emotions. I mean, we don't want to be, we are not Buddhists or other Eastern religions that want to detach themselves from emotions. Like, praise God for emotions. I want to love God with all of my emotions. But the knowledge of God, the truth of His Word, is also to anchor us anchor our emotions when our world turns upside down when the crisis hits when the pressure hits when things get hard if my mind understands who God is then my heart can also grab hold of the same truth so i want my heart to grab hold of this truth that he is before all things and in all all things in him all things hold together That is not just an intellectual statement of God's capacity to uphold creation. That is a heart reality if we choose to make it that way. If we choose to take that and say, God, this is who you are. You uphold all things. So even when the world is turning upside down, I mean, how many of you know, like, the world's going crazy right now? I mean, there are people that legitimately, intellectual people, political people military people that really 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 think that China is going to engage in Some global conflict Within less than five years. I don't know what that means Will that affect our life in Evansville and Boonville and Newburgh? I don't know to what degree? I don't know But what I what I am sure of is that in him all things hold together so there are limits to what Xi Jinping and other leaders, there are limits to what they can do. There are limits to what Vladimir Putin can do and not do. So even if the world is thrown into chaos in two, two years or three years or five years, we can be sure that in Christ all things hold together. So Hebrews 1.3. I've shared this on a Sunday before, but I'm just going to touch on it for a second. This verse became very real to me not just intellectually, but in my heart. Um, When I was in Bible school, we were taught to take our Bible into the prayer room, to meditate on it, to pick a verse. No one told us what verse to pick, but we were taught to read our Bibles, to find verses and phrases that touched us in one way or another, and we were taught to meditate. What does meditate mean? It, for me, it meant spending multiple hours over really multiple months with the same verse. So I would pace around the prayer room. I like to pace. Other people sit. Whatever. doesn't matter. For me, I would pace around the prayer room with my Bible open to that verse, Hebrews 1-3, and I would read it over and over again. I would think about it. I would pray about it. I'd say, God, I would just use these phrases. I'll, I'll read the verse. It says, and he... Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So I would take that, I'd take portions of this verse, and I would quote it back to God, and I would pray through it, and I'd say, okay, God, what does it mean? What does it mean that you uphold all things by the word of your power? And through asking questions and through listening and through pacing and through praying and worshiping, there was a point where I felt like God turned the tables and asked me a question. I felt like God was speaking to my heart and saying, Jason, by what power does flesh stick to bone? By what power does flesh stick to bone? And the more I thought about the question, the more it felt like that question was just pounding into my chest. By what power, Jason, does flesh stick to bone? Tell me. Tell me if you're so wise. By what power does flesh stick to bone? And I just began to think about that concept of like where I'm at in human history. Like I'm not just a few generations after Adam. I'm not even in the dark ages, you know, with the, the, the conquests and whatever in Europe. I'm like way, way past in human history. Far you know, some would say 7,000 years, 10,000 years, whatever. It doesn't really matter how many years. There's lots of them. So here we are, thousands upon thousands of years into human history. And I'm thinking through this. How is it possible that the word, right, in, in, in Genesis, it says, God said, let there be, let there be this and let there be that, let there be light, right? He created the first humans. He breathed life into them. He told them to multiply. How is it possible that that DNA still knows how to multiply and still become a living human being thousands of years later? How is it possible that fruit tree seeds still turn into fruit trees that then bear fruit tree seeds that then turn into fruit trees? And this has happened thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times, and here we are today. So here I am meditating on this reality and realizing, wait a second, the Bible says the answer but I don't just want to intellectually check it off the box and say, okay, God, you created everything, and then walk away. The truth becomes powerful. The truth impacts us, not just intellectually, but emotionally, when we take time to stare at it and think it through. So God was, God was confronting me and saying, by what power does flesh stick to bone? And my answer was his verse. Like, here it is. I've been meditating on it. God, you uphold all things by the word of your power. But no longer was that statement just a, I'm just getting it, I'm going to get an A on the test, I'm going to get that answer right. It was no longer just me checking it off the list and saying, okay, yes, I theologically believe that God upholds all things. It became real to me because I spent time to think about it, pray about it, meditate on it, ask God questions, then God asked me questions like, okay, God, there is something, your word is, hasn't just been preserved in a manuscript form, and therefore it is a highly prized historical piece of writing. The Word of God is more alive than that, and it has more power than that. And if I really, really believe that in the depth of my heart, it can be an anchor to my soul in the midst of upheaval, in the midst of crisis. So Job 34, 14 through 15. This was another one of those verses that I meditated on in this season. Job 34, verse 14. It says, if he should determine to do so, if, if he should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. What an awesome sentence. I mean, terrifying, but awesome. I mean, this really encapsulates the reality of that, of, of that core doctrine of the faith that God sustains all things. He created all things. He sustains all things. Here it is, fleshed out. If God would determine to do so, if He would take back to Himself His Spirit and His breath, everything, boom, would just collapse, not just into chaos, but it would literally just completely It would return to dust, like it would have no form. The human DNA would no longer be able to reproduce. Hearts would no longer pump. Limbs would no longer function. If God determined to do so, everything would cease to exist. So he literally is upholding all things. And what a marvelous reality. So, and then this struck me. If God chose to sustain all things, if God chose to keep everything going, even after all of the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Mussolinis and the whoever else have done their craziness to the earth. Even after all of that, God has chosen to keep this thing going, to keep the earth spinning on the perfect axis and to keep the earth from being plunged into extreme heat or extreme cold and we'd all die in an instant. Then what does that mean? To me, it speaks of God's love for what He has made and that his plan for creation is not done. Like God's extreme patience is absolutely overwhelming. How many of you are perfectly patient with your spouse? I'm not. If, if Julianne was in here, she could testify. Even in the last 48 hours, I have personally experienced impatience with my spouse. Frustration that shouldn't have been there. So if, if that's true... And then we think about God, thousands of years of human history, and yet he's still keeping this thing going. It really does speak of his undying love for what he has created, his extreme patience, perfection of patience, and that his plan is not yet over. So even when an earthquake strikes and whatever it was, 20,000 plus people lose their life, even in the midst of those chaos moments, we say, God, somehow you still have a plan. Life isn't always fair. We don't always get to enjoy it all at the same level or for the same number of years. But somehow, God, you have a purpose that's bigger, bigger than what we can conceive. So, Jesus performing miracles. So, under A, this is a quote non Christian sources dated as early as the first century refer to Jesus' reputation for performing miracles. Non Christian sources. So the, this is not just early Christians writing in a journal, writing a letter and proclaiming that Jesus was a miracle worker. This is non-Christian sources as early as the 1st century are referring to Jesus as far referring to Jesus's reputation as being a miracle worker. So minimally historians can say with full confidence that the belief that Jesus performed miracles originates from his own lifetime and is not a product of later myth or legend. So rock bottom, basic truth claim, non-Christian historians can say with confidence that there was a plethora of statements concerning Jesus as a miracle worker even when Jesus was still alive. So when the Old Testament establishes that it is God and God alone that has the power over His creation. So Psalm 65, 7. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, and the tumult of the peoples? It's speaking of Yahweh. He is the one who can do that. In Psalm 89, 9, it says, You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And the New Testament demonstrates that Jesus has equal authority over creation. So we are... Uh, familiar with this verse, Matthew 8, 23, says, when he got into the boat, Jesus, his disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. They came to him and woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. What a crazy statement. No one has ever tapped me on the shoulder during an earthquake or a impending car accident or something and said save me jason if they did they'd be in some serious trouble because i couldn't do jack for them so here they are coming to jesus in the midst of the storm saying save us lord and then he said to them why are you afraid you uh, you men of little faith on some level that feels like a whole lot of faith because they're acknowledging jesus's ability to save them and yet jesus is like hey Obviously, you should have faith that I can save you, but you shouldn't be afraid. So there's even greater faith that you should be possessing. So then he got up, he rebuked the wind and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed, and they said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So he was not just conjuring up some power from the spirit realm that didn't belong to him. It was he himself that had authority to calm that storm. He did not need to ask anyone permission. He did not need to say anything special. He did not need to tap into any new age whatever. He, from himself, his own personal authority as the God-man, was able to rebuke the storm, and it instantly became perfectly calm. So someone participating in a miracle does not prove that they are God. How many of you know that? Someone participating in a miracle does not prove they are God. Every example of a miracle worker displays that none of them possess power in and of themselves. For Elijah, for example, prayed for miracles to happen. Moses only worked miracles after God commanded him to free Israel from slavery. In the New Testament, every miracle took place when the disciples used what name? The name of Jesus. The apostles only healed in the name of Jesus. So this is significant. Miracles do happen. And how many of you know, the New Testament talks about lying, what? Lying, signs, and wonders. So there are, there are individuals that operate in the demonic realm. You can go to Africa. You can have a witch doctor lay their hands on you. I mean, please please don't do that. (laughs) No one edit this video in a weird way saying I'm (laughs) endorsing the pursuit of witch doctors. Right, but there are things that humans would classify as miracles or, or manifestations of power that alter things, even in other religions. The difference is that all of those None of those individuals who have ever walked the earth with a so-called power have ever had it in and of themselves. They always have to say this incantation or to charm this demonic spirit or to call upon this deity or to do X in order to hope that some power is manifested. Jesus is the only one who has ever from himself, not needing to tap into anything but his own, his own deity, has been able to enact miracles. Now, he did it in partnership with the Holy Spirit and the Father. He's, he sometimes prays, Father, you know, uh, this is what I'm doing. You know, he wants to do it in alignment and with the power of the Holy Spirit, but he has the authority. So in John 14, 13, we see this. It says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And this is even after his death and resurrection. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. So he doesn't need to ask permission. He has authority and power to perform miracles. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So there is no prophet, rabbi, or priest that has ever claimed to be the sole source of truth in life and to be the only path to God. Yet Jesus proclaimed exactly that. Where did the authority of rabbis come from? The authority of a rabbi came from them neatly shuffling themselves into the hierarchy of rabbis that went for generations behind them. The more they quoted the rabbis that went went before them, the more they were perceived as having authority, right? They would quote the rabbis from behind them. So yet Jesus did something completely different. He never once quoted a rabbi to back up what he was saying. He demonstrated authority that originated from himself. He said that every word out of his mouth was absolute truth. So John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So unlike a rabbi that would point people to someone else, that would say, hey, what I'm saying is true because Rabbi so-and-so said it. And he said it was true because Rabbi so-and-so said it. And he believed it was true because of the rabbi before him. And yet Jesus shows up on the scene, not quoting rabbis, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That was, a, that was the type of teaching and declaration that was not known at that time. That was absolutely abnormal for that to happen. Jesus said he was the exclusive means of getting to the Father. He didn't say that he would point people to the source of life. He said that he himself was the life. So then... On page six, this is Acts four twelve, it says, And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is a short statement, but again it could not be clear. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name No other salvation. I suspect that a statement like this will be harder and harder for the world at large to swallow. This is so thoroughly, politically incorrect to say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. There's no salvation in anyone else. All roads don't lead to heaven. All lifestyles don't lead to the kingdom. That Jesus is the only way. It's narrow, it's hard, it's difficult. The Bible says, through many trials, we enter the kingdom. How many of you are signing up for that? Through many trials, we enter the kingdom. No round of applause? Come on, guys. It's the word. Through many trials. I don't gain strength by denying the truth. I gain strength by embracing the truth and saying, okay, God, I trust you. I don't gain confidence in the future by denying that God will allow our nation or our world or my family to ever touch difficulty. My confidence is not rooted in me denying that trouble will ever come. My confidence is enhanced by embracing the truth and saying, God, you say through many trials that we enter the kingdom, you say the way is narrow, you say the road is difficult, but you say that you overcame the world. You say that you went before me. You said that you, will, that you will be my ever-present help in time of need. You take both of those truth systems, you put them side by side, and you say, God, this is the way. And I say, yes. Yes, it's narrow. Yes, Jesus. And then we receive the grace to move forward. The grace to cling to the Lord. All right, Jesus possessed authority to forgive sins. When he had come back, Mark 2, verses 1 through 12, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet, on which the paralytic was laying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So their heart posture may not have been right, but they were accurately saying what the Old Testament teaches about who can forgive sins. So they were misunderstanding Jesus' identity, but they were rightly giving a summary statement of what the Bible teaches, that only that God alone can forgive sins. That was true, 100% true. So immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up immediately, picked up his pallet, and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Stunning. So he he said that within himself... He was able to proclaim forgiveness of sins. And then he said he, he released the miracle so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So it was already known that Yahweh could forgive sins. That, that was not blasphemy. That was, that was the, the one truth statement that's like, okay, yes, everyone can agree. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they could all, they could all agree on that one. Yahweh can forgive sins. But Jesus shows up and said, So that you will believe that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I'm going to prove it by having authority in and of myself to release power. And no rabbi that ever went before him or after him has possessed that authority or that power. So Jesus, the supreme judge. The Old Testament taught that God, Yahweh, alone was the judge of the earth. Genesis 18.25 Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous and the, with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge uh, of all the earth deal justly? Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And that's referencing Yahweh. So Psalm 96, 12 through 13. Let the field exult and let all that is in it, then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Again, the Lord Yahweh is coming to judge the earth. So the New Testament declares that Jesus is the judge. John five twenty-eight through 29 Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all the tombs All who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did good, who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. All who are in the tombs will hear His voice talking about Jesus. And the Old Testament declares that the future day of the Lord is God's day of judgment. So Isaiah 13.6 says, Wait, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. It will come from destruction from the Almighty. In other words, Yahweh. The New Testament declares that this day of the Lord is actually the day of the Lord Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 1.8. Who will also confirm you to the end, talking about Jesus, blameless in the day of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus does everything for us that God does. And therefore, we can confidently declare that Jesus is and was and will forever be fully divine. Amen. So I will end with prayer. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us a plethora, God, of meat for our souls, God, truth to enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Father, I thank you that you give us the opportunity to love you, with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. Father, we pray that you would help us to say yes to the truth of who Jesus is. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just know it in our mind, God, but that we would believe it in our heart, that we would proclaim it with our lips. God, as you open doors of opportunity, Lord, I pray this truth of who you are that we would be able to confidently declare it, confidently talk about who you are to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. See you next week for part five of five. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time.